Hi guys, this is Betty Wild from Monsters and Mothers. If this is your first time here to the show, we have recently moved to Anchor.com. If you would like to subscribe to all five seasons, please click the link in the bio or visit me at MonstersandMothers.com. As little girls and boys, we look up at the glowing angel that gave us life with love and adoration. But for too many, this is not a happy reality. For many, the woman holding us is a true monster. These are their nightmares. Delve deep as we unravel the turbulent bonds between mother and child. You are listening to Monsters and Mothers with your host, Betty Wild. Thank you for tuning in today. You're listening to Monsters and Mothers, and I'm your host, Betty Wild. First off, I want to say thank you so much to all my subscribers. And if you are here for the first time and you are having some difficulties subscribing, just go to anchor.com and look up Monsters and Mothers, and you will have access to all the seasons. And we are currently at season five. Thank you so much for your support. Today's case is Karen Matthews, mother of Shannon Matthews. This case takes place in Dewsbury Moor, a town within the metropolitan boroughs of Kirklees in West Yorkshire, England. Nowadays, many people remember their time spent in Dewsbury, England as a place they'd actually like to forget. Its memories and popularity are far different than the travel pages will have you believe. Dewsbury was famous for two things. The first was its McDonald's, just next to the bus station that was the stomping grounds for many drug addicts. Mackey's, they called it. It had a peculiar purple light. What the purple light did was deter the addicts from coming into the bathroom to shoot up because they couldn't see their veins in the purple light. This only deterred them to do it upstairs where everyone else could see. There were dealers on every corner in Dewsbury and the once bustling community previously known for manufacturing heavy blankets and uniforms had become a wasteland. Now, how'd you like to live in a town where you're specifically known for the purple lights in your McDonald's? That's a little scary. Now, the other reason why Dewsbury became so famous was the Shannon Matthews case. So if you stop by, if you even tell anybody that that's where you're from, Even 23 years later, they're still talking about this case. The town was sickly, but to locals, it was home. And the area may be shoddy, but these people, they looked after their own. And for me, that's the real backbone of a place. Not its dilapidated buildings and foul-smelling streets. The mothers there were stitched differently. They had heart deep souls that ran deeper than any of the rumors that flowed past them. These women would lay down their life for you. Some, though, one in particular, took advantage of them in a place where there just was no room or acceptance of that. It was a cold winter on February 19, 2008, when a 999 call was placed by Karen Matthews the mother of nine-year-old Shannon Matthews. When the police arrived, it wouldn't be the first time they had come knocking on Karen Matthews' door. Karen Matthews was a red-headed, stocky woman, 
not very attractive, and spent most of her days spinning lies and getting over where she could. She was that one woman in town not many had good things to say about. Up until this point, Karen Matthews was wildly known throughout Dewsbury for neglecting her children. These reports came in from neighbors and even from family and close friends of Karen, all before this case even broke open. You could say to hear Karen's name would cause the immediate eye-rolling reaction as to what has she done now attitude. Many were sick of Karen's shit. Her own sister, Julie Matthews, even reported her. After years of complaining how Karen looked after her kids, she was tired of Karen never buying them diapers or real food and watching her feed them takeout every single night. She was always drunk, and she kept her house in squalor. It was reported that Karen and her boyfriend, Craig, would leave the children at home by themselves for the entire night. And there were signs of serious alcohol use that led to the children being abused all the time. Now, these are reports that are going out almost on the daily on this family. Social workers believe that Karen's ability to parent her children was compromised by her inability to put the children's needs above her own. After this, the children were put on the at-risk registry. But unfortunately, this only lasted a year. Even though there were still signs of neglect, they were taken off the watch list. I have to say in all honesty here, the social workers were just as much to blame for what happened. Natalie Brown, a friend and a neighbor of Karen, who would later be the first to suspect Karen of wrongdoing along with Julie Bushby, were really trying to be supportive of Karen because Karen had only just completed her parenting classes and gotten her certificate to prove that she was a fit mom, which was commendable after the constant attacks from those around her. So what would immediately follow made no sense to anybody in Dewsbury. Even though Karen was at this point being portrayed as a neglectful mother, no one deserves to have this happen to them. So Karen received the support from the community and in fact, a nation of supporters would become emotionally and monetarily invested in her plight to find her nine-year-old daughter. Shannon Louise Matthews was born September 9th, 1998. She would be 23 on the date of this recording. Shannon was a sweet, friendly child that was loved by her friends, her teachers, her classmates, she was just a fun kid that didn't let her home life surface when she was around her friends. Now Shannon's teacher worried about her at school in the days prior to her going missing. Her teacher said that Shannon had trouble focusing on her schoolwork. This was the same teacher that had called social services because she would notice dirt caked on Shannon's body, on her feet, her hair was knotted and tangled, and her clothes were always dirty. Teachers are mandated to report any time they felt a child was being neglected or abused. Now Shannon's teacher worried about her at school in the days prior to her going missing. Her teacher said that Shannon had trouble focusing on her schoolwork. This was the same teacher that had called social services because she would notice dirt caked 
on Shannon's body, on her feet. Her hair was knotted and tangled, and her clothes were always dirty. Karen made no attempt to change how she parented, even with so many people reporting her and coming forward. But still, after the multitudes of reports, the children were taken off the at-risk registry list. But this didn't stop the reports from coming in either. But not being on the registry allowed Karen to be notified whenever a report came in, giving her ample time to get her home in order. Now, Karen Matthews' mother, June Shannon's. Now, Karen's mother, June, Shannon's grandmother, said she always knew when social services was coming when her daughter would ask her for money. This way, she could buy food so that it looked like she was feeding her kids. Now, this shows a lot. It shows that Karen herself knew she was being neglectful, and she knew that she wasn't feeding her children what they needed. June, Karen's mother said, sadly, this was the only time she ever put real food in the house. Now, everyone in Dewsbury knew Karen, and rumors quickly spread, as it does in small towns, that Karen only had children so that she could get the benefits. And with seven children, fathered by five fathers, her children were her only source of income. One of Shannon's happier times was when she got to visit her grandfather. You could say it was the only time in her life she felt safe and cared for. But that all ended when Shannon's mother had a falling out with her granddad over his wife. Her mother told her she wouldn't be bringing her around there anymore, and this broke Shannon's heart. It was her last safe place. This would be the turning point in Shannon's life. She spent a lot of time in her room, and she didn't like living with her mother. When Shannon felt her world caving in, she would peel back pieces of wallpaper and write little notes behind them. One of her scribbles that she wrote had said that she wanted to live with her dad. One night, Shannon could hear her mom and Craig fighting and arguing like a war had broke out, and Shannon snuck out and ran up the block to her uncle's house. She got along with her cousins and her uncle, but the uncle immediately didn't want to get involved, so he asked his 10-year-old daughter to walk Shannon back to her home, even though that it was said that Shannon cried the whole way back. The next day, Shannon would go missing. On the 19th of February, the day after Shannon ran away, she went to school like normal. She was a little happy that morning. She would be starting her swimming classes. In spite of all that was going on in her house, it was the one thing that she loved and she was looking forward to. Now on that morning, Shannon's mother yelled at her to get out and to never come back. This was the last thing that Shannon heard from her mother before she went missing. There was a school assembly to announce that Shannon had gone missing. Shannon Matthews had many friends in school. Her best friend, Callie Brown, said Shannon was always nice to everyone and was really well-liked. When the announcement came out over the loudspeakers, Callie says that the entire auditorium burst into tears, and it was very emotional. Ordinarily, Shannon is outgoing with her friends and chatty, but they said that this morning that she went missing, when they thought she would be excited to go to her swim classes, Shannon just sat there quiet and withdrawn. It wasn't like Shannon they knew at all. Megan, 
Another of her best friends didn't really ask any questions either. She didn't want to pry. On the way back, though, from the swim class, their bus was unloading back to Westmore, and Shannon would disappear. Now, it was 4 p.m. that day, and Karen had said she had not seen Shannon at all. So she decided to go to her friends' houses to see if she had been there. They all said they hadn't, and at the time, Karen didn't seem worried. She said she figured that Shannon went to her friend's house, or her cousin's house. So her and Craig, along with his sister, decided to go shopping instead. But when they got home, they said they were really worried because Shannon was still not home. Karen dialed the police and said she would like to report her daughter missing. They asked her age, and if there were any arguments before she last saw her, to which Karen told them that they had not fought and that everything was fine at home. The police arrived at the house at 7 p.m., but Karen was not there. They were greeted by Craig and the kids, and they told the police that Karen was out searching. Now, when they asked about recent events, Karen was adamant that Shannon would never run away and that she was super happy at home. Meanwhile, she's telling the police that Shannon was very happy at home, but the officer is looking around the room and noticing that the place smelled of cigarettes and that there was garbage spread out everywhere they looked. Food left out, takeout boxes piled up high to the ceiling almost. Craig, Karen's partner, was on the defense from the beginning. He kind of took a step back the whole time and just sat at his computer almost uninterested in what was ensuing. Neighbors showed up at Shannon's house to help and show their support. The police went and paid a visit to the father's house, Leon, and the father was visibly devastated. He immediately drove back to Dewsbury to help in the search for Shannon. The police did line tracing, walking side by side to canvas the area, leaving no stone unturned. And people came from everywhere to help look for Shannon. And it was around this time of year, in the middle of a cold snap, when temperatures plummeted to minus 10. After four days, when every outhouse, garage, and open space had been searched, the police feared that even if Shannon hadn't been murdered or had run away from home, she must by now have frozen to death. So the real main concern was that had she run away from home, that the weather was dropping and soon would be freezing. And a lot of people were frightened that she might be getting hypothermia somewhere if she was hiding. Over 200 police officers went door to door and word spread fast, but there was still no sign of Shannon Matthews. They decided that after their extensive search, that this was not a runaway, and now they were treating it like a homicide. Julie Bushby, a close friend of Karen's and head of tenant association, decided to start a civilian search for this little girl. She was convinced that Shannon was still alive and refused to believe it was a homicide. She was very successful in gathering large crowds to help in the effort to find Shannon. Now, this just happened right after the big Madeline McCain case. And this case was really what was the driving force as to why so many people just got up and said, this isn't going to happen again. And they went out and went hard to show that just because they lived in a poor community that they were going to put in just as much effort as they did to find Madeline McCain. 
officers went to Karen and Craig's to see if they can piece together what was happening in Shannon's life before she went missing. During the interview, the officers were adamant that Karen not contact the media and that it was crucial to Shannon being found. This meant no press conferences, no interviews, because this could hurt their investigation. So I did find it odd that almost immediately Karen went to the press and was on television, holding up Shannon's teddy bear, saying she wants her Shannon to come home and that Shannon was her little princess. The first thing I noticed that was odd watching this footage was the doll. This didn't look like any doll a child would favorite, as dolls goes, that is. It looked like a plain small bear, like one you would see attached to an, a valentine balloon that really doesn't have much life to it, something that you would just find at a drugstore. I also found it strange that Karen addressed Shannon as a runaway when she told the police that she would never run away. And she didn't speak as though this were a homicide or directly to anyone that could have her. Everyone handles their shock and grief differently, yes, but she was very removed. It almost looked like crocodile tears. The entire town was searching for Shannon. Her family, the police, the neighbors. You would think her own mother would be out there leading the efforts or home distraught. But she was neither. She was seen often drinking a beer with Craig just hanging out in the house. There is normal behavior of a mother and there is suspicious behavior. So other than giving a press conference, Karen sat in her home with Craig and the other kids as though they were just hanging out like any other day. It was certainly strange. Karen's own best friend said that after watching the interview, she began to feel like something wasn't right. She never once heard Karen call Shannon her little princess. And when her friend asked her if the doll was in fact Shannon's, Karen said she didn't know. That would have already stopped me in my tracks if I heard that. So out of all the toys that you chose, you chose the one that if your daughter was going to see it on TV, she would have absolutely no emotional connection to? It doesn't make sense. It obviously shows that she wasn't emotionally attached to her child. So now we have the homicide team and every police department on the case knocking on 2,000 doors, asking if they had seen anything suspicious in the days or weeks before Shannon went missing. The police academy in the next town over even closed down so that the cadets could blanket the area, searching high and low. There was a helicopter with heat-seeking technology flying over the areas. Men walked through the lakes in a line searching with tools for a body or clues. Any ditches or caves, wells were searched by huge teams. Now, mind you, it was freezing. And in order to get divers down to search for what they thought they were looking for was a body, they had to break through ice. And the sheer magnitude of what was done to get this little girl found was enormous. Over 200 residents, without even being asked, came out of their homes and searched for Shannon. They printed up t-shirts, flyers, made calls. Every mom was on this. This is how powerful these women in Dewsbury are. 
Now, the local newspaper issued a 20,000 pound reward, which of that a business put up 5,000 pounds. And then the paper increased the reward so it would be 50,000 pounds for the safe return of Shannon. So in total, there was 3 million pounds spent looking for Shannon, which was actually the biggest search in 30 years since the Yorkshire Ripper. Even the search dogs turned up nothing. It was as if Shannon had just disappeared into thin air. No trace to be seen, no eyewitnesses, nothing. They had vigils for Shannon. Candles lit up the streets. Trees were planted in her yard. And balloons were released in honor. Another press conference was given, and both Karen and Leon appeared. Karen wore a missing persons t-shirt with Shannon's face on it, and still with the same teddy bear, posing for the press. This time, there was no emotion at all. On this particular interview, Karen made it obvious that she thought that it was someone she knew that took Shannon to hurt her. And with nothing to go on, the masses began to look harder at the parents and then began the deeper look into their relationships. There are rumors flying about that Craig was abusive and violent towards Shannon and that Shannon wasn't the happy child the parents made her out to be. The police did some digging and suddenly it was brought to their attention that a family member slipped through the cracks. How convenient. There was an uncle of Craig's that became an interest, Michael Donovan, who only lived a mile away. Karen had said she forgot to mention him earlier, like it was no big deal. So was it a coincidence that Karen and Craig both forgot about the uncle up the road? Michael Donovan was a recluse that kept to himself. After sustaining a head injury in a car accident, he was living off of disability benefits. Now they did want to question him, like they did everyone else, but it concerned them more that they didn't see him at any of the searches. A family member right smack in the middle of this doesn't even inquire? So the two main detectives on the case went to Luke Gate Gardens, where he lived. He lived in unit number 24. When they knocked and got no answer, they decided to question a few of the neighbors. One neighbor said he should be there because his car was there and he never went anywhere without his car. They questioned the person that lived downstairs from them and she said that she heard Donovan's footsteps this morning. But what she also reported was that she heard another set of footsteps that sounded more like a child's. She said she didn't report it since Michael recently started dating and thought maybe the girlfriend had a kid. After hearing this, the police thought it didn't sound as innocent as that, and they immediately called for backup. They decided that they were going to break into the home and not take a chance. It was a risk they were willing to take. As soon as they broke in, they could sense how still and quiet everything was. They searched every room till they got to one room that was locked, and it took only one kick to get the door open. They immediately could smell cigarettes. One officer touched the bed, and it felt warm, as though someone had just been sleeping in it. Just then, they heard a small whimper, and a child saying, Stop it, 
You're frightening me. They tried to lift the bed, but couldn't because these types of beds had drawers underneath them. And then all of a sudden, a drawer opened at the base, and they saw Shannon. She was disoriented, as though she were drugged. She was unable to stand, so the detective picked her up and took her out of the room. They asked her where Michael Donovan was, and she pointed to the drawers they had just pulled her from. The officers took a peek, and there was Donovan, balled up in fetal position. The police said that he refused to come out of the drawers, and that they had to drag him kicking and screaming into the patrol car, where he was placed under arrest. The neighbors gather around screaming, Is that Shannon? And then screaming profanity at Michael Donovan as he was put into the police car, and Shannon was placed in another. The forensics team came in. They dusted the place for fingerprints, searched for any DNA, but what they found that was disturbing was a long tether cord attached to the ceiling, which is like a long rope that was wrapped around a beam on one end and on the other end was placed around Shannon's waist like a leash. It was only long enough for her to go to the bathroom while he left the flat. Under the bed, they found travel sickness medication that was used to keep Shannon calm and sedated. They also found a stash of money and a copy of the newspaper with the headline that read 50,000 pound reward. When the officers walked around, they found a set of rules for Shannon to follow on a piece of paper, and it was handwritten. You must not make any noise or bang your feet. You must not go near the windows. You must not get anything or do anything without me being here. Keep the TV volume low, only up to eight or lower. You can play the Super Mario games, and you can play some DVDs, and you can play the CD music. Now, this list of rules was signed at the bottom with the initial I-P-U, which means I promise you, a term only her mother and her knew of. So this handwritten note was written by her mother. There were travel coloring books and bags filled with clothes by the door, which looked like Mr. Donovan was planning on fleeing with Shannon. Luckily, he didn't make it. Well, they don't think this would be a happy ending to this already tragic story. Michael Donovan, the previous year, had a charge for abducting his own daughter, which was dropped. Now, once the news hit that Shannon had been found, the emotional outpour was just overwhelming. It was a time of happiness that filled the streets. Huge celebrations broke out. Dancing and partying went on in the streets. So much effort had gone into searching for Shannon. Blood, sweat, and tears. Parents. All thinking the unimaginable could happen to their own child. Julie Bushby was one of the first to hear that Shannon had been found, which is odd because they usually keep that information private until the parents are notified. But Julie was so excited that she texted everyone and ran over to Karen's house. She was followed by a crowd wanting to be there when Karen got the news. But what everyone could see was the expression on Karen's face. It was blank, but also a look of shock. 
and then she burst into tears. She had to look away from the cameras, which was extremely odd for anyone to watch. Even Julie was like, smile, Karen. Why aren't you smiling? And then other people started to say the same thing. Smile, smile. It was very strange for everyone to really witness this reaction coming from Shannon's own mother. The police officers at the house took Shannon to the police department. But instead of taking Karen straight away to see her child that was missing, they informed Karen that she wasn't allowed to see her just yet, just to preserve any evidence since they were still investigating the case. But her reaction really stuck in the minds of everyone who were left there processing what they had just witnessed. Karen didn't have any emotions. She didn't ask any questions like, where was she found? Is she hurt or is she okay? Can I see her? Nothing. Even when she saw her through the glass, she didn't reach out for her or shed a tear. Her only response when seeing her daughter was, oh, she got new clothes. Under the Children Act, Section 49, Shannon was placed under child protection for 72 hours. No one was allowed to see her until the investigation was over. Karen and Craig were put up in a hotel. Meanwhile, a block party broke out in Dewsbury that was enormous and went all night long. All the kids were there. Everyone celebrated like it was the 4th of July, dancing, crying. It was tears of happiness. It was just pure joy for this finally to have closure, have an end, and to have Shannon Matthews back. But while the celebration was underway, there was a particular interest now in Karen and her involvement in the case. Was the town ready for this blow? Michael Donovan began to sing like a bird. He was at the Halifax police station and now had an attorney, which he reeled a statement that basically implicated Karen. He stated that Karen came to him with a plan that he looks after Shannon and she pretends Shannon is missing and then they wait for the reward money and then they share it. Michael Donovan said that once the reward money hit 25000 he would be contacted with further instructions, but he never did get contacted, even after it reached 50,000 pounds. He said Karen threatened him that she would have him killed. He believed her because of the guys she mentioned he knew actually killed people. At no point, though, did he hurt Shannon or harm her. He took good care of her and bought her things to keep her busy, bought her new clothes, hoping to make it easy for her. Originally, Michael Donovan's name was Paul Drake, which he later changed because of his favorite television star from the Alien series V that was on TV. So here is where it's still confusing. He met Karen at her father's wake. Karen was seen drinking with him and flirting, falling all over him and even sitting on his lap. It was suggested that they were having some type of an affair. At this point, though, during the DNA testing earlier, it was discovered that Craig wasn't actually the father of the son he thought he had with Karen. And maybe this was the real father of Karen's son. There isn't any more details to chase on that to really verify it. By now, all the neighbors are really digging their noses in and seeing what is up with Karen. 
and her odd behavior. At this point, she isn't even angry at who took her child. She isn't asking questions, and she certainly isn't getting emotional. But what is becoming obvious is the look of fear on her face, that she is hiding a big secret. Now they are looking back and seeing all her odd behavior that went overlooked. How could they not have seen it? They recall the odd times when she had been seen laughing and carrying on with Craig, hanging all over him, sometimes behaving even sexually with him. But as soon as the cameras were on her, she started the waterworks and her emotions would turn on. It was all mounting up and they wanted answers. Why wasn't she demanding to see her child or asking questions? The real reason she wasn't getting access to her was because of the accusations but the police already suspected Karen. They just didn't make it public. They basically waited for her to step in her own mess and expose herself. During the investigation, they had pulled the computers from the house, and after what they found on Craig's computers, Craig was arrested at the family home on April 2nd on suspicion of downloading child abuse imagery after police officers examined all the computers in the home. He was remanded in custody by Dewsbury magistrates in a hearing the following day, charged with 11 offenses of possessing indecent images of children. On April 18th, he pled not guilty to charges and elected to be tried by a magistrate rather than by jury. He was convicted by Dewsbury magistrates of 11 counts of possessing child abuse imagery, relating to 49 images found on his computer, including some with children as young as four years old. On a scale where one is the least serious and five is the most serious, the court found Craig Meehan guilty of possessing 30 images at level one, 10 images at level two, two images at level three, and seven images at level four. Meehan was sentenced to 20 weeks in prison but he was released because he had already spent longer than that in remand. Now, the town of Dewsbury, not very forgiving. They wanted answers. It wasn't until Craig was arrested that they were like, WTF, Karen, what the hell is going on? But instead of charging at her, they went the sensible route. God bless him. I would have just lunged at her. Julie Bushby, who was head of civilian search, and Karen's close friend, Natalie, decided it would be better to contact a liaison. I mean, at this point, they know about the allegations in Michael Donovan's report, but they already had their own suspicions way before, and now they needed answers. So this liaison was appointed for Shannon and the Meehan family. Her name was Christine Freeman. Christine went and arranged to meet up with Karen and Julie and Natalie. They sat her down in a room, and during this time, they let Karen know that they were hearing rumors and that she was somehow involved in Shannon going missing. And they flat out asked her if she had anything to do with Shannon going missing. Up until this point, they had asked her in private many times and were always met with tears and her saying that she'd never lied to them. Now, Karen, not able to hold it in any longer, burst into tears and said, it's true. All of it's true. Finally, they see the real tears, not the forced ones displayed on the news and in the papers that made everyone suspicious to begin with. She was just sobbing, and it all poured out. 
Karen was arrested on the attempt to pervert the court of justice and child neglect. Here's a fun fact. It was reported that Karen's family reached out to the Madame McCann's case, the little girl who had gone missing just before Shannon, and Karen's family made several calls and sent emails to this family, and they were being very pushy and forward about it, asking them to donate to the Help Find Shannon Fund. They were just very blunt about it. You got all this money to help find Madeline. Can you just give us some to help find Shannon? I believe it was this case that planted the seed in Karen's head in the first place to abduct her own daughter for money. Now, the McCain family was just about to give 25,000 pounds to Karen until police themselves contacted them that some recent information has come to light and that they don't think at this time giving them money would be a good idea. So, at this point, they were getting different stories from Michael Donovan and Karen. So what they could piece together was that Karen had met Donovan in a cafe. Karen even brought her youngest with her at the time. He said they first discussed it being her oldest son that was to be abducted. And at that point, Michael just refused. And then Karen said, you know what? You're right. I think we can get more money from Shannon anyway. She broke it down to him, even wrote it out that she will report it. She will notify him with instructions after the reward pool gets to 50K, which at that point, Donovan was to take Shannon to a public market and he would drop her off at a site. And then inside of the market, he would magically find her, take her to the police and claim the reward money. He had to memorize this and then flush the note. And when he said he didn't want to, she threatened to kill him, which Donovan said that he knew the guys and said that he was already scared of them because they, in fact, did kill people. So he went along with this. Both Karen and Michael Donovan were sentenced to eight years. Afterwards, it was said that Michael Donovan was severely beaten in jail during the hearing, and he had appeared in court with a broken jaw. Karen is currently out now, and I hear engaged. Her children now live with new families. Karen recently announced that she wanted to have another baby with her new boyfriend, who was a convicted pedophile, which she was actually trying to find a surrogate to carry their child. But the laws are very different there, and it's illegal for any woman who carries a child for another woman that they cannot do so for money, and they remain the legal mother until adoption, whether the adoptive woman is the biological mother or not, and to ensure all parties are fit parents, which I think we can all agree that Karen is not suitable. The aftermath of what happened left Dewsbury Moore in a state. The police would post anti-vigilante flyers around the neighborhoods because everyone felt betrayed by Karen. The town felt a deep loss, almost as if they had lost Shannon again. Not her friends that sent letters and cried long nights for her safe return. Not those who ran searches endlessly no one. Shannon was gone again, in protective custody, with a new identity. Not even her dad or grandparents could see her again. There was just no closure. Karen's house was destroyed by mobs furious with her. They even had to board up the windows with wood and metal screens to keep people out. In one fell swoop, Karen would destroy a town, her children, all for money. This is Betty Wild, and thank you so much for listening to Monsters and Mothers. 
Thank you for listening to Monsters and Mothers. Subscribe to hear more chilling accounts of mothers who commit unspeakable horrors. 